may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 30, verse 25, um, and all the way through verse 31. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to read all of that for us. If you're uh, visiting with us, we're working our way through the life of Jacob in the Genesis story. Um, And I've often encouraged us in this part of Scripture to bring your Bibles with you to worship on Sunday or scroll through them on your phone. We cannot, we just simply cannot print the entirety of the narrative for us in the already rather large worship guide. Um, And so if you don't have a Bible, though, uh, grab one of those pew Bibles and take it home with you. Genesis chapter 30, starting with verse 35, and I'll just be reading through the end of chapter 30. This is God's word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own house and my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I've given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when... Shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages." So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flock towards the striped and all the black in the flocks of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the trough before the eyes of the flock. 
that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as, ask, as we ask his, word, his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Oh God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would bring light to it by your Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who has searched our hearts and knows what needs to be exposed by Him through the light of the gospel. And the same Spirit that knows what needs to be redeemed in our hearts by the power of Jesus. And so we pray as we come to your word, we are expecting you to do great things for us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was struck by uh, these words as we are singing it. Um, I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied on him alone. And I thought those are aspirational words. They're not the reality, the lived reality at least, of most day in and day out life. Most day in and day out life is lived with discontentment and doubts and fears because life is hard and the circumstances that many of us find ourselves in are difficult. And in the middle of any trial, the waiting is the hardest part, waiting for God to do something. If you've been reading along with us in our Seeing Jesus Together journal, that psalm from yesterday was a typical waiting psalm. God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to put things right? Why are the corrupt in power? Why do you let the unrighteous take advantage of the vulnerable? Why have you in that psalm let Israel and Jerusalem and even the temple be overrun by your enemies and our enemies and be destroyed? Why will you not show up in the midst of this trial and put things right? Why have you not intervened in my broken family? Why have you not fixed what is so desperately need to be fixed in my life? Why have you not delivered me from this sin that is ruining so many aspects of my life and damaging so many people? Why am I waiting? It's the waiting that's the hardest part. There's actually a psychology of waiting, which means we've studied this because waiting is just part of life. And they set out to ask the question, what is it that can help us tolerate waiting a little bit better? Why do we study things like this? To control it. Because in the midst of waiting, we lose our sense of control. And so here are some observations. If you want to help a person wait, occupy the person. That's why you have, that's why you have TV screens at the gas pump. If you're waiting for the gas... Give them something to watch for a little bit. Or mirrors by the elevator. Because what do you do when you see a mirror? Well, you look into it at yourself. And the waiting doesn't seem as long because you've occupied the person. People want to get started. If you help them get started, waiting feels a little more tolerable. So you get moved from the waiting room to the exam room. And you may wait there. You will probably wait there, but that's part of the psychology of waiting. You feel like something has started, like movement is happening. The entire wait is just as long. 
But we've been fooled into the illusion that something is happening. We're making progress in the waiting. If you can explain the wait, then it feels better. When the internet goes down and you don't know why, that's frustrating. You just can't figure it out, and so you've got to wait for somebody to show up. That's a lot harder than if the internet goes out and it's caused by a storm. You know the explanation. It's no longer mysterious. You know the cause, you know the fix. And so if we can explain the way we wait better, but under the psychology of waiting at all levels is this sense when you lose control, waiting is difficult. And so put control back into their hands and they can wait just a little bit better. And this This is the very reason that God causes his people to wait. Because he's detoxing us from the false illusion that we can control things. He could give us the thing that we're waiting for immediately. As the psalmist cried out in Psalm 74 just yesterday, Pull out your hand from your cloak and you who've ordered the stars could make the mountains rise and fall. You could do something, but God's like, I'm going to wait. Because while he could give us the very thing that we're waiting for in an instant without any trouble. The one thing that he wants to give us is the one thing that is only found in waiting. Himself. And a deep sense of his faithfulness and his promises. The reliability of his promises to come true in contrary to promised circumstance. He's giving in the midst of waiting the thing that we need the most, a deep sense of his abiding love that is only found there. Always deeper into his love for those who are in Christ in the midst of waiting. And if you're not in Christ, oftentimes part of his waiting is to stir up that same sense of relentless inability he'll often put many of you before you became a christian will your lives were marked by a deep sense of dissatisfaction i can't get this together my life is out of control i need someone to intervene even for those who are not in christ the deepening of dissatisfaction with ourselves and our own abilities is part of the waiting period and then god showed up And he brought you to faith in Jesus. But the waiting didn't end. It just turned to now be full of a sense of his presence and his promises. Well, this narrative is a narrative of two schemers. It has been this way since Jacob arrived in Laban's land. Two men who loved to take things into their own hands. Jacob From the moment he was conceived, even in his mother's womb, was a man of scheming and wrestling. He had wrestled with his brother who had come out first and was the firstborn. Jacob now schemed away by his cleverly devised plans a life of success. He had taken from his brother Esau, the birthright and the covenantal blessing, but those very plans that he had laid out was what led to his downfall. He had to scheme to get, but now his scheming led him to run for his life. He ended up in 
the north and Padam Aram with his maternal family home. And there he met Laban. Laban out-schemed the schemer. He outplayed Jacob. He out-wrestled the wrestlers for 14 years. Jacob was in his service because of the well-laid plans of Jacob. And this narrative that we're in takes him another six more And as this narrative is coming to a close, there's one more act in this story. The two schemers are both attempting to get to a place of prosperity and flourishing with their plans. But here it begins to fall apart. Laban has a really good plan. Jacob, not so much. Jacob has served Laban for these 14 years, seven for each of his wife. And now the Lord has showed up in a dream and told Jacob, it's time for you to go home. And so Jacob sets out, I'm going to approach Laban. I'm going to ask him to send me away. Laban doesn't want him to leave because he's done quite well taking advantage of Jacob. It's his perfect mark. He's been able to get what he wants out of Jacob and he's prospered while Jacob's been around. And so Jacob offers, so Laban offers him a gift. And Jacob's like, No, I'm not taking anything from you. I'm going to take my wages. I want to earn this. So Laban says, Name it. Name your wages. I'll give it to you. So Jacob sets out his plan. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass through your flock and all the weirdly colored goats and sheep, the speckled and the spotted ones, all the black lambs. I want those as my own. And you won't find in many flocks many who are speckled, spotted goats or many black lambs. Lambs are usually white. Jacob's not asking for much, just a few And so this seems like a good deal, and Laban agrees, and then Laban sets out for his scheming. Well, Jacob's not watching. He gathers all those who are speckled and spotted and all the black sheep, and he sends them three days' journey away. He calls his flock of the very ones that were supposed to be given to Jacob. Now, three days' journey is a really long way in that day and age. That would be like putting that flock on the trailer and driving them out to Wyoming. They are nowhere to be seen. Once again, though, it seems that Jacob has been out-schemed by the schemer. But Jacob can't stop taking things into his own hands. He can't turn off the scheming engine of his heart. He either sees something that he wants or he sees the potential threat and his immediate reaction is to put something in plane so that he can come out on the other side safe and secure. He's been duped, but now he's got a plan to put things right. And it's a really strange and odd plan. He gets to work to rebuild the flock Isn't this what we tend to do, all of us, all the time? When the pressure is on, we just drop into old patterns. As much as we like to think things are different for us, 
that we really are different people. Put a little heat on us and you'll notice that the fruit that shows up isn't what we wished it would be. That's why I called that line an aspirational value. I trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. I wish that were more true of me than it is, but this is what we tend to do. Because potential threats only serve to reveal what's truly in our hearts. What is usually there, if you go down deep enough, is a very deep-seated self-reliance. Self-sufficiency that we're addicted to. And the recovery school of God's treatment center to remove the addiction to ourselves is in the place of waiting. But Jacob can't wait. He crafts his own plan. And again, this is a terrible plan of a desperate man. He launches possibly into the weirdest animal husbandry plan in the world. He takes the rest of Jake Laban's flocks and when it's time to water them and have a mate, he just grabs some sticks and strips off some pieces of wood so that they become spotted and striped themselves. Puts them in front of the troughs while they're eating and hopes maybe this will work. There is no evidence in the history of science or animal husbandry that something like this has of any value to him. He's a desperate man. This is this is about as effective as when I was in college and I'd get desperate about the upcoming exam. So I'd go to bed and tuck the notes under my pillow. Maybe while I'll sleep, they'll just float up into my brain. And I really think that at this point, Moses, as he writes this down, intends for us to be laughing at the foolishness and the desperation of Jacob's plan. The man who came out of the womb, grasping his brother's heel, was able to plan and scheme to steal the rights of the firstborn and the covenant blessings of God is now grasping at straws and peeling bark off of sticks with the hope he can rebuild his flocks. But it works. His flock of striped and spotted increases to abundance. Better said, God worked. The Lord had made his promise to Jacob. No stupid plan of self-reliant Jacob was going to derail the covenant keeping God. If you've got your Bible, skip all the way down to chapter 31, verse 4. You'll see the abundance. You'll see Jacob as the end of the six years where his flocks increased, now looking back and testifying to what God had done through his foolish self-efforts. Again, another six years, seven years for Leah Another seven years for Rachel, now six years for his flock. He's waited 20 years. And in those 20 years of being taken advantage of, plotting foolish things, God caused him to prosper. So verse 4, so Jacob sent out and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. 
You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If I said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in that dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, mottled, for I've seen all that Laban's doing to you, and I am the God of Bethel. Were you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me? Now arise from this land and return to the land of your kindred. The end of the waiting, one thing that he can testify to, God has done something. And he's kept his promise. And I don't know if you caught this, but prior to this whole endeavor, God had told him, I'm going to give you the striped, spotted, and mottled sheep and goats. They're going to be yours. Jacob couldn't just sit and trust him. He started stripping bark off the plants with the hopes that maybe God needs a little help. I often say this. It's, I find it easy for me to trust God when I'm working, but I find it very difficult for, him to, for me to trust him when I'm not. And oftentimes, that is exactly where God puts his people. But let's not skip over something here. Laban is being motivated by the fact that Jacob's mere presence has caused blessing in his life. In verse 30, in chapter 30, verse 27, this is what Laban says. Laban said to him, I have found favor in your sight. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, I don't think that Laban actually figured this out by divination. He's a liar and he's a schemer. He's appealing to a man of God with some religious practice. It doesn't take divination to realize that once Jacob showed up, things in his household become to get increasingly better for him. But that has been part of God's covenant promises to his people. He looks at Abraham and says, you are mine. And this is what's going to happen. Because you belong to me, I will bless you. But here's what else is going to happen. Through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. I'm on your side. We're in solidarity. But the blessings that I give to you are in such abundance that they will flow out to the world in which you live. Throughout history, Israel's history, there are always three categories of people. Those that God had allied himself with and were blessed. Those who were against God and his people, the cursed. But then there's this middle category of those to whom the blessings of God's people overflowed as well. Maybe we'll call them half-blessed. Today's word, we might call them promise-adjacent people. Because while the blessings of God are specially and specifically to those who belong to Christ, it is such an abundant blessing. His kindness is so overwhelming that it overflows to those who are around the people of Jesus. It's been the case with our nation and in other places, in other places where the church has been strong, the 
the nation has prospered in general grace kind of ways. When the church has been strong, then the nation has prospered. We value things like justice in our country, and we don't have much reason to account for justice in a postmodern context. Justice is a universal, or it's not justice. It, it has to address not just the powerful oppressing the vulnerable. Justice has to transcend groups and tribes and narrative and party. It has to level every playing field. And while I don't think that America was founded as a Christian nation, I do know that the heavily influenced by deep Christian thinkers who built in certain truths that formed a well-grounded democracy, like justice, like a standard of righteousness to which we will be held accountable, like the fact that because we are all after our own self-interest, we need checks and balances in place. Likewise, you can look back to the early Roman Empire where the Romans hated the Christians, but the one thing that they could not deny was that things were a little bit better in the places where the Christian prospered. Well, Rome was throwing their children into the fields when they didn't want them. The Christians were gathering them up and rescuing them and putting them back into homes. Even the emperor Trajan looked and said, hey, man, that's pretty effective for uh, a good running society. Maybe we should act a little bit more like them. The vast majority of charitable giving in the United States is done by the people of Jesus. Whether it's not only to the church, but other charitable organizations, the hospital system, the medical system, the hospital systems in the United States was founded by the people of Jesus. Orphanages, when there were no orphanages around, were founded by the people of Jesus in our country. And this is what Jesus says. This isn't even a command. He doesn't say, go be this. He says, just who you are. When he tells us that we are salt and light, he's not commanding us to be something and do something. He's just simply declaring, as a result of your union with me, my blessings on your life. What's going to happen is going to overflow to those around you. And he grabs these metaphors because salt and light do two things. They preserve decay and they enhance beauty. Take away light, almost everything dies. Take away salt, decay sets in. But they also enhance beauty. The golden hour of the day when the sun is shining and it's most beautiful makes everything around it more beautiful. And steak is awesome, but you put a little salt on it. Oh, it gets so much better. That's what it is where the blessings of God for his people is special. It's saving and significant, but with a kindness and his grace is so abundant that it overflows to those around who are in close proximity to God's people. So that even a man like Laban is blessed because of the presence of God's people. But there's a little bit more that's going on here. And it's this. Jacob has a great, 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 great grandson one day who was sent by God as his own son and took on his flesh, whose kindness and abundance in Jesus is so overwhelming that it flows out to the greatest of sinners 
who are gathered into his household. Nothing makes waiting better than to know God is with me and on my side because he keeps his promises. It's been 20 years of waiting for Jacob at Padam Haran. 20 years of being deceived and taken advantage of. 20 years since because of his own scheming, he was run out of his homeland to live in exile in Padam Aran, oppressed by a deceiver, taken advantage of by an out-scheming uncle. But this was what the promise that was made to him on the way out in chapter 28. This is what God had said and arrested him in the night. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you'll live. I'll give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you on your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed behold I'm with you and I'll keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised now look at verse 43 of chapter 30. Moses is purposely, as he often does, he's hyperlinking us back to that encounter when he says this at the end of his six years. Thus the man, Jacob, increased greatly, just as God had promised, and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. And so... It had grown to such a degree. The man who entered into Padamaran running for his life had God on his side, and no one could outscheme the God who keeps his promises. And so in 31, Jacob, chapter 31, Jacob gathers his family together, plans an escape. And it is an escape. And we get a little tidbit of what he's communicating to his wives as we had read. He tells them about the dream. He says, The Lord has done. Everything that he's done, he's promised to do. Now we're going to leave. You can imagine what it was like for the original audience to hear this as Israel is escaping from Egypt with, with Egypt, with the, Israel, the Egyptians at their back chasing them down. And they're reading this story and going, God's doing it again. It's a template for their experience. Enter destitute, become slaves, leave with the riches of Egypt. Why? Because God had kept their promises and been with them. They're going to need to hang on to that promise for the whole of their history amidst great adversity. Because God was on Jacob's side. He flourished. But Laban's not done. He's the schemer. And he doesn't want to lose any of this. So he chases, he chases him down, ransacks Jacob's camp looking for his household gods, which Rachel had just simply stolen out of spite and put in her camel bag and tells her own lie to keep from Laban finding them. At this point, though, Jacob's done. He sets his foot down. He's done with being treated this way. Why can he do this? Because God had blessed them to the degree that the one man who was a refugee for his own life has prospered into a kingdom 
Look at verse 36 of chapter 31. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all of my goods. And what have you found of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between the two of us. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried. I'm not eating the rams of your flock. What I've torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me. By cold at night my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served your 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock. You've changed my wages 10 times. Everything was against me except one, God. He was for me. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have set, sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Jacob entered this long period of exile and waiting, prospered under God's care to the degree that Laban is so afraid of him that in verse 44, Laban asks Jacob for a covenant. He's asking him for legal protection. Come now, let us make a covenant between you and I and let it be a witness to me. And Jacob does. He enters into this covenant. He sets up a stone to commemorate. Jacob is into stones. And he sets up a stone to commemorate the agreement, the covenant that they've entered into. And then they agree, no one's going to pass by this stone. Jacob won't go past this stone to the north. Laban won't come past this stone to a south. It is a boundary marker of two kingdoms. He entered destitute. God had prospered him in the waiting, not because of his own hands, but because of the abundant grace and promise keeping God. But something else is going on here. When Jacob sets up this stone as a boundary marker for the kingdom, this becomes the upper border of the promised land. It's now been established hundreds of years prior to Jacob's grandfather. God had said, Abram, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to give you a place and over Hundreds of years, God fulfills his promise. Slowly, the promise is being unfolded. Jacob, who seemed to abandon the promised land as a destitute family without anything now. How in the world could God take out of those puny resources of Jacob and his scheming hands and create a kingdom for his own possession? That's where God works. And contrary to promised circumstances with only the destitute and hopeless sinners, he works amidst the most adverse conditions possible so that at the end of the day, 12 children, large flocks, riches, and now the boundary of the promised land set because God who promised was with them. My friends, often we want God's resources we want his blessings. 
We want him to keep his promises. But we don't want his timing. We want his hand, but we don't want his calendar, as someone has said. We forget that his greatest work is not to give us what we want, but to work in us while we wait. Because God only works in one direction. Forward towards redemption. And he only works at one speed. His best redeeming speed. So even while we wait, the waiting itself is the good gift of the God who loves us. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, so many of us in this room whose lives right now are marked by waiting, waiting for you to change someone that we love and waiting for you to change ourselves waiting for you to deliver from sickness and disease and cancer, waiting for you to deliver us from our own sin that is plaguing us and we are so desperate in our waiting. As we come to this table, would you feed us on Jesus? For you're the good shepherd who sets a table in the midst of our enemies and we receive the grace that we need from this table. And so nourish us, we pray, for Christ is Lord and King and Savior of sinners. Amen.